Hello, and welcome to Introducing Me. I'm your host, Sarah. I started this podcast to get to know other people and lifestyles while discovering more about myself. Each episode, I will give a new guest a chance to discuss their background, culture, interests, or whatever they want to talk about to help increase all of our own worldviews. Today, I would like to introduce you to Genesis Amaris Kemp. She is a woman of color who said enough is enough and is now speaking up to challenge the status quo. So she's got a lot of things going on and I'll let her share more about what she's up to. So Genesis, thank you so much for being here. Why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit more about yourself? Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. Um, Everyone, my name is Genesis Amaris Kemp. As Sarah has mentioned, I am a visionary life coach. I'm also the author of Chocolate Drop in Corporate America, From the Pit to the Palace. I wrote this book to really spread awareness about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, and talk about my seven and a half years working for a Fortune 500 in oil and gas, even though I was in corporate for 15 years. And outside of that, I do a radio show that's internet-based that I do once a month with WBNN, and then I host my own podcast where I interview um, guests similar to Sarah. It's very conversational, with the core pillars being education, inspiration, and motivation. And that's a bit about me. So what is it? Uh, there's so many ways we could go with this, but we'll start with the book. What was it first like writing that book and making sure that DEI and belonging were out in the world for you? So this book was um, birthed out of frustration, to be honest. It was um, a day in corporate America around performance review time where I had worked my A double S's off to be moved up in ranking from a B to an A. And when I got my ranking back, I saw that I was a B and I was like, there's no way in hell. Like I stepped into this new project, been working on this project. It was the first time in history that my company had ever did something like this. So I was managing three global distributors, one freight forwarder, and I was working on the commodity polyethylene. So my background is actually supply chain and logistics, and I was in trade regulations and compliance. I'm like, what? You want me to do what? What, who, what, why, and how? And I was like, I have no experience with trade regulations, sanctions, compliance, or anything. So I literally had to learn everything that I needed within a week to two weeks and build this program up to make sure there were certain checks and balances in place and make sure we were dotting all our I's and crossing all the T's. So whenever um, I did all this stuff and we had KOs, which are knowledgeable others, all of my KOs and the feedback that I got from my peer reviews, as well as the external people that I was working with on this project were superb. But then whenever my supervisor gave me my rank, it didn't make sense. So I literally pulled out my phone, Sarah, and I just wrote in my phone, chocolate drop in corporate America. Had no idea that I was going to write a book, but I was so mad. And y'all, I am a melanated brown skinned girl. So if I could get red, I would probably be red as a cherry tomato because that's how mad I was. And if steam could come out of my ears or smoke like a dragon, just picture that. (laughs) Because that's how frustrated I was. And I was like, 
I pretty much told her, you need to change my ranking from a B to an A. And she said there was nothing that could be done because the final process was already submitted. And I was like, this is bonkers. This is total, total baloney. And I just said, okay, I don't think we could continue with this meeting because we're, we're both not very level-headed right now. Because if I would have continued on that day with that review, I would have said some things that probably would have got me ushered out of the the campus. Um, so that definitely helped. And then whenever I like, you know, cool down, I really assess the situation that one, it's a good old boys club when you're in oil and gas, there's not a lot of women because it's a male dominated workforce. And then so at being a woman, I was already a minority being a woman of color. That was another layer. And then also being first generation American was also the third layer. And I was like, okay, so I have to work hard to be seen and heard. And I don't want to just be that pretty face at the table or that woman that they like to talk to about certain things. I want to be taken seriously. So I really had to learn how to navigate my ranks in corporate without compromising my morals and values. So I put that into the book. I put the importance of taking ownership, asking questions, looking for a mentor, because you may not always be assigned to a mentor, then knowing the difference between a supporter and an advocate can also help you, you know, move up your ranks in the career because no one is going to remember the quiet person in the room, but they will remember the person that spoke, spoke up. Even if you had had the dumbest question and someone looks at you like, really, did you really ask that friggin' question? Um, but they're going to remember that. And so I put all of that in the book and if it will help Sarah, I could actually read the back of the book and I think it will may, maybe drive some awareness about maybe what you have went through, whether it's in a corporate setting or not. Sure, go ahead. So I want you to answer these questions after I read the entire passage. So the first one is what challenges in the workplace have you encountered that left you feeling as if you were mistreated? Have others who were unqualified seemingly pass you by in the ranks? In our daily lives, we are all faced with various trials, whether in the workforce or at home. However, when treated unfairly, it takes courage to stand and fight for what's right. No matter your race, nationality, ethnicity, or background, you can rise to be the game changer. When you use the power of your voice, you shake the atmosphere and cause a domino effect because others will choose to either follow suit or stand in solidarity. On the pages of Chocolate Drop in Corporate America, Genesis has chosen to speak up for not only minorities, but also anyone who has been slighted on the job in any way. From her personal testimony, you will learn how speaking up brought awareness so that long-lasting change could be made. We do not win by remaining silent, overlooking injustice, and continuing to practice poor judgment. We win by standing together, engaging in those difficult conversations, which I'd like to say now courageous conversations, and helping one another. Let's work together to create change for future generations to come. And I mean, the reality is, is the whole just speaking up. It is, it is so important. Um, 
I'm just thinking about those questions and, you know, how different people navigate through corporate America or, or even outside of the corporate world. So did you have the chance then to speak up after that review? Oh yeah. (laughs) I spoke up around the time that the Black Lives Matter, also known as BLM movement started. So it was the vice president that called all of us together that identified as people of color, um, African-American or black. And he asked people to volunteer to share their story with racism, whether personally or professionally. I'm like, uh, this kind of sounds like lead the horse to the water, but make it drink, make it drink and put yourself in a black hole. So I just kind of sat there cool, cool, calm and collective, like a cucumber. And then he called on me and he's like, so do you have a story that you would like to share with the group? Because they wanted it to be like an open floor concept where we're engaging. So I was like, hmm, where do I start? So <laughs> I shared my personal experience. And these are the two stories. They're going to be very brief. So I was like, I have a problem when I'm with my sister's kids who are half Caucasian. So they look white and someone follows me around the grocery store and a lady walked up to me and my niece and didn't even look look at me. She just went to my niece, are you okay? And I'm like, what the hell? Like, what the hell is she talking about? And my niece goes, yeah, I'm fine. Because my niece has like sandy blonde hair. It's very curly and long. And then my nephew has uh, long hair as well. But he kind of looks like Cor- Corbin Blue, but just very like caramel skin. And I'm like, yeah, because I'm just going to pick up some random kids on the side of the street and just hold their hand. So that was the first incident. And I was like, okay, I could either react in this situation where I live in an area that's predominantly Caucasian. And there's a a few like diversities there. There's a few Asians, few blacks and et cetera, but predominantly. And then the second incident was my brother's kids who are half Indian my little nephew had came home from school and said that someone on the playground refused to play with him because he was not pink. And me, I'm very comical, y'all. So I busted out laughing. I was like, pink? I was like, what is pink? And then my sister-in-law, who's a teacher, who obviously has more training with the kids in that area because I work with adults. So, so I was like, what is that? And she's like, oh, it's like white. And I was like, seriously i was like who are his parents so i could go talk to their parents and she's like because i could be zero to 100 real quick and i was like well buddy you should have told him i'm sorry that you can't get down with the swirl i'm the best of both worlds and you know i could be like a, a chameleon i could you know camouflage over here or camouflage over there and when he said that it kind of broke my heart because at the time He was, I think, either six or seven. So for someone to teach a six or seven-year-old that hate at such a young age, you can only imagine what they would be like in their teenagers or adult years. And I was like, it was awful. just So just to hear the stories and what my nieces and nephews went through. Like, first I have the ones that they're calling them zebras because they're half black or half white. I was like, oh, a zebra is really cute though. And then I have one saying, oh, the kids won't play with me because I'm not pink. And so it's like, 
seriously, like if you look, like we were all mixed up, whether we realize it or not. But if you we looked at ancestry.com or DNA, you'll see that you're mixed with something else. And we can't help who we're born to, but we can get back to humanity. So those were like my two shares. And then when he asked about the professional one. I was like, well, here we go. So this was like troop ball. I was like, I started in this company in August of 2013 as an admin. I humbly stayed in that position for four and a half years, even though I came to this company as, you know, a former HSC manager. So health, safety, and environmental man for a smaller corrosion company. Then I changed my entire degree plan to complement this company. So I went from a psychology major after being in the program for two years to supply chain and logistics in technology with double minors in purchasing and organizational leadership and supervision. And you all paid for part of my degree. Then I went on to be a raw material coordinator for polypropylene, which is a form of plastics. You only gave me a thousand dollar bump in salary. And then now here I am doing trade regulations and compliance and you still have me ranked as an admin, even though I travel for the company, I represent you all in C-suite executives. I have a company credit card. I have an Amex. I get to pick what hotels I stay in. There's a limo that comes to my house to pick me up and take me to the airport. And I have Emerald Isle status, meaning I just hop out once I get off the plane, go down the aisle, pick any car I want to drive, hop in, go. The keys are already in there for me. But yet you still want to classify me as an admin? Where do they do that at? And one week after me speaking up so boldly and unapologetically, I got a phone call from my boss that said they were giving me a $20,000 salary increase and bumping my classification level from a 15 to a 22. Then fast forwarding after that, I found out I was being laid off. Uh, due to the pandemic, along with 19, uh, 1,900 other people. But I was like, hmm, at least I secured the bag and got some respect on my check. <laughs> Do you know if your speaking up also like affected others in the company? See, that I don't know, but I hope that it got some wheels churning because there were other people in the room. And I had no idea that HR was in the room. And I guess since HR was there, that also helped me get that big whopping salary increase. But I'm like, you already knew that you were underpaying me. So don't just see it as, oh, yeah, we're doing something good. You merely saw it as a way to check the box because you're trying to clean up your act. Because so many companies were trying to ramp up their diversity, equity, and inclusion background when it came to the whole Black Lives Matter movement. And then after that... The next movement that popped off was Stop Asian Hate. So I was like, man, I would have loved to been a fly on the wall to like hear what my Asian co-workers had to say. <laughs> so then how have you kind of transitioned since being laid off to the work that you're doing now? So now um, doing the podcast has definitely afforded me a lot of abil- ability to talk to different people across various industries. Um, The coaching has been great because I started putting out more content on diversity, equity, and inclusion and taking it from a check the box and a move the needle to really being evident and having raw conversations on what exactly is diversity, what is inclusion, what is equity, what is belonging now, because that's very important. 
And then just really engaging in those difficult conversations, like I said, and letting people know, even though we're different, we're more alike versus different. So if we focus on the areas that we have commonalities, that will help. I did a program with the University of South Florida virtually, which was diversity um, and inclusion in the workplace. And I thought that was really good because a lot of people worldwide came together and we could really have these conversations and talk across the board. And I feel like, okay, we already knew that this was a problem before things in the world change. So just like, let's keep the momentum going. And then another thing that just really helped me um, was since I lost my dad in November of 2020 due to medical negligence. And then shortly after that, I got laid off. It was a way for me to honor my dad's legacy and keep engaging with stories with other people that I may not have been afforded the ability to talk to. And so what is it that you do with your coaching? Like what sort of things are you helping people or companies with? So right now it's people. So I like to do one-on-one coaching because, you know, one size does not always fit all. So some of the things that I help them with are unlocking um, their mindset. So overcoming those um, limiting beliefs. And I call them hacking your mind because sometimes we have different things in our mind that condition us to remain stagnant or complacent. I do mirror work with them, meaning like I want them to actually get in front of the mirror and start reprogramming themselves with the new paradigms, which you're going to say your strengths out loud. You're going to recite your gratitudes because if you live in attitude of gratitude and gratefulness, you'll start to see how positive vibrations and energy will come into place versus negativity. And I'll use the cell phone analogy, just like you have to update the software on your cell phone, you have to update your internal software to live life optimally. I'll also do mind mapping sessions with them. And I like to call them word vomits or brain vomits because you're just spitting everything out onto paper and then you're thinking about it and then you're reflecting because sometimes we're so busy in life that we forget to take time out to really reflect on what's going on in order to really process like, why am I feeling this way? What is it attached to? What are the root causes and et cetera? Because some people just live on the surface, but if you think about it, Diamonds and all the beautiful jewelry, those are all made from the pressures. If it never goes through the pressures and that deepness, would we would we even have these beautiful diamonds? Yeah, I really like those analogies there. Now you talked about, you know, what your nieces and nephews have experienced and your corporate experience. When you were growing up, what were your experiences being a person of color, being first generation American, being a woman? Like, how has your younger experiences shaped who you are? Oh, it has vastly. Um, But sometimes people call my dad like a Mexican or like he's a black Mexican. And I'm like, he's not Mexican, first of all. And just because he speaks Spanish does not mean he's Mexican. He's South American, you idiot. And um like in high school, I was bullied. Like some people didn't realize like that I was doing flawless in Spanish, but they didn't know at the time that my dad spoke Spanish fluently because my dad was from Curacao. So right off the tip of Venezuela. And whenever my dad came to class one day, we were having, I think we were having like a culture day or something. And he made, I think it was fajitas or enchiladas. 
And then like the teacher gravitated and then she wanted him to come to the class and teach the class. And I was like, I'm not pimping out my dad to help these students. Like they don't even like me like that. And so that um, experience definitely shaped me because ignorance is bliss. And then the other part was um, my mom is Caribbean, so she does have an accent and her accent is kind of heavier. And people are like, oh, what are you, Jamaican? And like my mom would say, is that the only island, you know? Or sometimes people will be like, I can't understand her. Is she speaking English? When very well, my mom is speaking English. So just those things, like it, it made me open my eyes to realize that, you know, people don't even put forth the effort to know that there are more places outside of the U.S. and there are different cultures and vantage points. And I feel like that actually made me want to travel more. So I've been more places outside of the U.S. than I have in the U.S. Because I was like, oh, I could always do that later because, you know, this is my home base. And I think whenever you get to submerge yourself with other cultures, people from other backgrounds, it makes you appreciate life a little bit more because the things that we take for granted, other people are wishing that they had access to it. Definitely. So what sort of cultures have you experienced outside of America? So definitely the Caribbean culture. I've been to Canada. The Canadians, they do things differently and they're very vocal. Um, where else have I been? Just those places for now. I've island hopped. So I've been to St. Lucia, the Bahamas, St. Vincent and the Grenadines, Jamaica, Trinidad and Tobago, um, Niagara Falls, which is Canada, Toronto, Brompton, which is another like city in Canada. And where else? I think I'm forgetting somewhere. Oh, Mexico. I've been to Mexico. And I think that was a fun experience because people kept saying at the time when we went to Mexico, don't go because the cartels and it was very dangerous. I was like, do you honestly think that they're going to put the tourists in jeopardy? And when we got there, I was not afraid, but people were nervous because they were standing on the street literally with AK-47, these big old like guns and stuff. I was like, see, nothing's going to happen to us. I just walked on by lollygagging. And I was like, wow, that's different because you don't just walk out your front door here in Texas and see people um, toting their guns, even though it is the wild, wild west here. But you don't see them standing on the street with automatic rifles. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that would definitely be a different experience. Um, Have you been to where your mom grew up? Yeah, my mom is from St. Vincent and the Grenadines, the West Indies. I've been there a few times. I've never been to where my dad is from. We wanted to go in um, before the pandemic, but that's when my dad got paralyzed due to medical negligence three days after being in the hospital from the waist down. So is that something that you're hoping? (coughs) Is that something that you're hoping to do in the future? Oh, yes. Very, very soon. It's on my bucket list. So I tell people the way my body's set up right now, I can't travel unless I get um, doctor's orders since I am pregnant, but I definitely want to go visit. I would love to go on a baby moon and do that before the baby comes, but we'll see. Yeah. So what is it going to be like for you to be raising a child? Oh, I can't wait because my family is so diverse. So I can't wait to like 
get her to um, submerge herself in various cultures. Um, my husband's stepmom is Mexican, um, who's married to a black guy. My sister-in-law is Indian, so she's Trinidadian Guyanese. My other sister-in-law is Cameroonian, so she's African. And then my sister's kids are half white, I mentioned. <laughs> so I tell people we're like the United Nations here. And then we have family in Canada, London, and a little spread out. So I just can't wait to like just be like, here you go. All these cultures and just like open her world to the endless possibilities to tell her a whole new world. <laughs> and is the area that you live in as diverse as your family is? So now it is starting to be, which is good. Yeah, but when you were growing up, it wasn't? No, not really. Um, sometimes I would be the only African-American person in my class. So um, growing up, I had a lot of friends that were Hispanic. And those were like the ni the nice ones that weren't like very judgmental. And so I tell people like with my Spanish, I always um, spoke sp a Spanglish because all of my Mexican-American friends spoke uh, slang. And my dad's like, that's not the proper way. <laughs> it sounds like you've had so many options and, and so many good cultural experiences. So you mentioned kind of in the corporate world that you didn't want to lose your morals and values. So what I feel like, you know, this cultural life you're leading is probably big and that, so what is it that you hold closely to your heart and how you lead your life? So one faith is very important to me because there were, there were times in my life where I lost, um, my fate due to life circumstances. Like I was bullied in high school. Um, that led to me going through a depression. So I tell people the dark season in my life, that's why my book says from the pit to the palace, then finding myself again, overcoming that imposter syndrome, really knowing who I am and whose I am. So really walking with confidence and really solidifying that I don't need to seek validation in other people who were never truly meant to appease me. I think that's an important part because so many people are just like, you know, jumping on the bandwagon, wishing and hoping people would like them. And so then they begin to change who they are to fit into a setting that they were never really meant to fit in. You were meant to stand out for a reason and just shine bright like a diamond and just be that gem. Another moral is like, I'm very passionate about education, inspiration and motivation, and just really connecting with other people who are different from me, because I like to have diversity of thought because I don't always want to be the smartest, the smartest person in the room, because then I'm not learning or growing. Personal development is very close to me. So if I'm in a setting that does not allow me the ability to enhance and grow personally, then that's not the right environment for me to be in. Because I'm I'm only going to be just surviving there. I'm not going to be surviving and thriving. And then if something does not feel right, like with my gut, so I really believe in listening to that still small voice and having that intuition, I'm not going to do it. And I think that also ruffles feather in a corporate setting, because when you're in oil and gas and they want you to get certain things done, they want you to do it 
a certain way, but if it goes against like morals and ethics or safety protocols where someone's life could be put at risk, then I'm not going to do that. And I remember um, there was a time where I was doing audits and I saw that my name was attached to a bunch of liquid products and I did not manage liquids. I managed um, high grade plastics at the time. Those were my commodities. So I immediately called the freight forwarder without a sign off from management and told them, you take my name off of anything that is liquid that is rolling out of the port of Houston, because that is not something that I'm co-signing because if something were to happen, if the liquids were hazardous, if there was a spill or anything, then my name would come up. And I think that really pissed my supervisor off because she felt like we should have had a conversation. I'm like, well, you put your name on it. <laughs> yeah. Do you think you'll ever end up back in corporate America? Um, maybe. I'm waiting to see what the future holds. Like, if I do go back to corporate, I think I want to try something fun and exciting like tech um, versus oil and gas since I did that for 12 years. Or, and after tech, it would probably be the medical field because that was my second job. So I, I'm still very young. I started working at 15 and my first job was being a personal assistant for a real estate broker. Then I went on to work at the cancer center. Then after that, it was 12 years in oil and gas. So I really like tech and I'm kind of eyeing Google. Like I just love their policies, love their suddenness and et cetera. And I have a few friends that work there and it's like, like a breath of fresh air. <laughs> and what would you see yourself doing in tech? Ooh, that's a good question. I could definitely do supply chain and logistics in tech or maybe something in T&D, which is training and development. But I am open to what the universe and what God has for me. And now you mentioned, you know, kind of always learning, putting yourself in situations where you can continue to grow. Have you thought about getting another degree or any more formal training? Oh, yeah. I talked to my husband about getting a master's. Um, but when I got married to him, I had five figures of debt, student loan debt, and my husband helped me pay that off. So looking at a master's, I'm like, it's about five, anywhere from five to six figures, depending on what university you go to. So I was like, mm, I need to like find a company that would like, you know, pay tuition reimbursement for that master's. And I actually was going to do it before I had got laid off with the last oil and gas company I was at. But then I found out that they capped it off. So it was like at 40000 a year is what they were offering to pay. And the master programs I was looking at were like 70000 and above. So I was like, oh, there would be like a $30,000 debt that my husband and I would come on. So I was like, uh. I don't know if I could swing that because my husband has been very generous. He helped me pay off my student loans and my car. So. <laughs> right. But you're being strategic about it. What is it that you're hoping to eventually study for a master's? Probably something in either business administration, because I feel like you can apply it um, in any area just so I could be more well-rounded. Cause obviously um I still have the entrepreneurship journey that I'm very passionate about. So even if I do go back to a work setting, I'm definitely going to have my own business on the side just to make sure I'm not putting all my eggs in one basket. And then the second option to study for a master's will be maybe something in 
um, health and human sciences, because if you think about it, medical is not going anywhere and it's always going to be a need. Definitely will always be a need. Yes. So you wrote a book, obviously switching topics again. Are you planning on writing another one? I would love to. So I actually have a book collaboration that's coming out later this year that I did with an author by the name of Chad Smith. And so he did an anthology. So I'll have some work in his book that I will be promoting once it drops. And then I think my next book, I kind of want to do something around like a daddy daughter relationship since I was very close with my dad and just kind of tie in grief and just kind of talk about what my father and I went through from not just me being his daughter, but then being his patient advocate and then being his caregiver when um, he came home for home health until just following along his journey and then just sacrificing because it's hard whenever you're working a full-time job, you're taking care of a parent, and then you have to be a wife on top of that and you're juggling. And sometimes looking back, sometimes I felt like I was absent from my husband, but present for my father. Would you be willing to share a little bit about what it was like to be a patient advocate? Oh, yeah. So it was very draining at times, but it was a learning. It was a learning curve because um, I was really just trying to understand the root cause of what happened to my dad, because I was like, how does someone walk into the hospital for their blood sugar levels being elevated? Because my dad had diabetes and he just needed some more insulin. And it was in the height of the pandemic to three days later, finding out that my father was paralyzed from the waist down. I questioned and questioned and questioned, okay, was there any chance that my dad had a stroke? They looked me up and down and said no. And it wasn't until my dad got to a rehab facility where one of the physicians realized that my dad had a stroke that went undetected. So if they knew that my dad had a stroke, then we could have got him to a neuro, a neuro center where they could have worked on him more aggressively. So um, with the help of PT, physical therapy, and OT, occupational therapy, my dad was able to regain some feelings in his leg, but not to the point where he was able to walk on his own yet. So he did a lot of different exercises there. So um, with that being a factor in them having my dad sitting for long periods of time or laying in the hospital bed, he ended up getting a bed sore that ended up getting infected, which led to sepsis. And sepsis is a type of poisoning that can enter the bloodstream and some people can either be cured from it or it could be terminal where some people um, pass. So with that, I had to learn how to navigate through various policies and procedures. I went and reported some of the facilities to the state of Texas for negligence. I also reported some of the doctors because during the entire process, I was asking for certain care to be given and they were not given that treatment. I do understand that since it was in the height of the pandemic. The hospitals were overpopulated with patients and understaffed with physicians, nurses, and et cetera. But at the end of the day, you signed an oath to do your job. And if you don't like your job, then find something else because 
if I didn't like my job and I was stressed and burnt out, I would leave and find something else. Like there's no money in the world that can make me want to stay at a place that is not conducive for my mental health. Because if I leave there burnt out, broke down, busted and disgusted on a daily basis, like that's not optimal for me. So that was the hard part of being a, being a patient advocate and just seeing my dad go through certain turmoils because he was always the one that was very active with like my siblings, kids, like, you know, he was my shopping partner and there were certain things that I could not do. So whenever my dad did come home for a period of time to do home health here where the various disciplines will come into my house, there were times where I would have to, you know, help my dad warrior lift him, which is a um, tool that you use to raise him up from the bed and then transfer him over to the wheelchair and lower him down. And I think that was hard. And there was times where he wanted to go outside and I was just worried how people would perceive and view my dad. Cause I would have to like pack, pack him up, put on, he had a catheter in at the time and just other different, um, tools that he had hooked up to him. And I was just very sensitive around that. But then um, so that was kind of that was kind of hard because if you don't really have a background in medical, some of the terminology is big. But I did have the saving grace of having my sister-in-law, who's a nurse practitioner, but her her specialty was oncology, and she did help me, like you know, muddle muddle through some of the things along with my dad's sister, who's a nurse, and um, his other sister who works in the medical field. So I tell people sometimes you have to be your own advocate or have someone to advocate on your behalf. Well, and I really appreciate you sharing all of that about your dad. And I think it is so important and it'll, you know, kind of be there with you for the rest of your life. And I appreciate you sharing it as well through our technical difficulties that we have been having. So hopefully uh, the listeners will be able to uh get that experience through all the emotion um, and the fun technology woes. Um, so I want to give you the opportunity to, you know, share something that I might not know to ask about um, or really anything that you would like to share at this point about you, about your life, about DEI and belonging. So one thing I want to share with the audience is to really take time to connect with who you are, understand what's your reasoning for being here on earth. And I like to challenge people, do the obituary exercise, <laughs> meaning if you were to write your own obituary, how would you like it to be read? And I know it kind of sounds vain and morbid, but if you think about it, if you could get to the end of the life and accomplish everything that you wanted to accomplish and write that out, versus someone else writing it for you and not highlighting some of the incredible things you did, then you would be more conscientious and focus on the deeds that you were doing and the seeds that you were planting, because obviously they're going to reap a harvest later on in life. And it's just like the farmer's analogy. If the farmer never sows seeds, is the farmer going to have crops to reap and sell? No, because he didn't do, he or she, because you know, there are women form farmers did not do what they needed to do. So I challenge you to do that exercise. And I want you to be so rooted in knowing who you are and understanding yourself that you do not feel victimized or you're not a prey 
to predators who try to demean or diminish who you are and what you have to offer. I think that's truly great to have that that message there. And it reminds me earlier how you shared, I don't remember exactly how you put it, but about like making it so that you weren't being someone else for others and that like you weren't looking for validation from others, like you're being you for you. So how are you able to kind of change that mindset and not, I don't know if you were a people pleaser, but I think there's a lot of you know, people pleasing and trying to fit into someone else's mold. And it sounds like you aren't doing that. So to go from being a people pleaser to a self pleaser, it really starts by doing the internal work and just realizing how, how you're showing up authentic, um, what makes you smile, what makes you tick, how you're connecting with some of your core values and, what, what's your mission? What type of imprint are you? do you want to leave on the world? And how is that driving an impact? Another thing is just really being mindful of your zone of genius. If you're operating in your zone of genius, that means you're firing on all cylinders versus trying to operate in somebody else's zone of genius, but you not knowing all of their skills and assets that they bring to the table because you weren't created to be them. And I tell people, if you just hold up your hands and look at your fingerprints, um, your fingerprints are different than another human being because you were uniquely created for such a time as this. And there's no other person on the world that has your fingerprints, even, even if you're a twin, whether you're identical or fraternal, like your fingerprint is uniquely crafted for you. And that's because you were uniquely crafted to leave a legacy here and build a foundation. So another thing I challenge people is do your um, SWOT analysis, which is like, what are your strengths? What are your weaknesses? What are some opportunities and what are some threats? And how can you accomplish that with personal development? How can you accomplish it with your mental mental clarity and mental stability, your emotional values, your emotional um, intelligence, your um, physical physical being? Like, are you making sure that you're mindful of your nutrition and your overall fitness and exercise? And then spiritual, whether you're connecting to a higher power, whether you believe in God, or maybe you just are still trying to find your way because if you connect all of those things, you'll see how a holistic approach um, comes in because mind, body, mind, body, and soul are interconnected. And when something is out of alignment, you're out of alignment and you're not opter- you're not operating as your full self. And when you don't operate as your full self, you begin to second guess who you are. And that that's how imposter syndrome could creep in or that's how other people could try to define you to be a certain thing that you know you're not. So I hope that makes sense, Sarah. It does. And I think you've shared a lot of great wisdom and a lot of good things for people to think about. So now at the end of every episode, I do ask all of my guests a random question. My question for you is, do you believe in the supernatural? Oh, yeah, I do. (laughs) At first, it was a little scary, but then whenever I had um, a dream once where I could like physically see my dad after he passed, 
like I knew that um that it was that it was real because it was like he was coming there to like kind of forewarn me of something that was gonna take place. All right, that brings this episode to a close. I'll be leaving Jenna's website in the description, which brings you to kind of all of her resources, her book. And if you'd like to check out the first chapter, that is free there as well, along with some other little freebies out there. Um, And you can connect with her that way. I will also be leaving a link to her podcast that she mentioned. And she is mostly on Instagram if you'd like to connect with her on social media as well. And of course, if you'd like to connect with this podcast on social media, our website is in the description as always, which brings you to our Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. If you'd like to go and follow those pages, I always appreciate that support. And if you'd like to support the podcast monetarily, a link to do that is in the description as well. And if you'd like to be a guest on the podcast, my email is there as well, and I'd love to have you connect with me. So thank you so much, Genesis, for spending time with me today and to my listeners for taking the time out of your day to hear a new story. Until next time, bye. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah.